This show may contain explicit language and or spoilers. Welcome back to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. And tonight, we are discussing Young Frankenstein. However, before we get into the episode tonight, uh, there are a few housekeeping notes just to uh, our regular listeners. Uh, We are now in uh, 18 different international countries that have been heard uh, so far uh, as a uh, family full of international experience. uh, That's a sense of pride for the show. And is that opposed to to domestic international countries? was a little redundant. But okay. Thanks for that. Okay. Anyway, uh, uh, I'd also, uh, again, like to give a uh, general shout out to Podcast Town. Uh, if you are a fellow podcaster, I would recommend getting on the community and um, trying to uh, help um, boost our numbers so far. I am a current founding member. Um, Dana's on the community as well. And uh, it's just a great place to learn, especially um, if you're starting your own uh, upcoming or uh, anything else you'd like to know, or if you just simply like to connect with other podcasters. So uh, check that out. Uh, also, our uh, founding member and the uh, so-called mayor of Podcast Town, or self-proclaimed mayor of Podcast Town, I should say, Elsie uh, Flennard's um, Enterprise Now. Um, if you're in the uh, Milwaukee area, uh, I would recommend uh, severely listening to his podcast for an outreach on uh, local businesses in the Milwaukee area. So uh, other things of note. So we have decided on our list uh, for the back half of season one, uh, finishing with our 50th episode. Um, we are planning to uh, possibly include uh, a couple of revisit. Uh, episodes before the end of the year. Um, We have a couple of things stowed away, but uh, just some potential movies that we have on tap. Uh, We're going to have our James Bond celebration for the new movie that's going to be coming out here in November. Uh, We're going to be doing two movies around that time. We have Jaws coming up. Um, I'm trying to remember some of the other ones that were on the list. Um, Well, let's see here. We had a whole broad range. We're doing... um... Rear window, we're doing. Uh, uh, no, rear window wasn't on that. Specifically. Was that going to be the no? Uh, but Home Alone is on the list, um, and a few other ones. I should have probably had that with me this evening, but yeah. um, as you can see, we're still on a shoestring uh, operation here. So, um, but uh, stay tuned for um, the back half of uh, certain episodes. Oh, Fiddler on the Roof. Um, the social network are also going to be coming up. I think we have potential guests lined up for the rest of the season uh, for a few different episodes uh, here and there. So stay tuned for all of that. Uh, you and I also are only two weeks away from our uh, mid-season point, our special 25th episode um, covering Rio Bravo. Next week we're doing The Great Escape. So um, definitely want to stay tuned for both of those. Uh, those are both uh, favorites of ours. Uh, I think those will be worth uh, the price of admission. Have to love anything that is World War II, 
have to love anything that uh, has um, James Garner. Uh, Donald's uh, Pleasance is in there. Yeah, but it, really, you, you come for the price of Steve McQueen. Well, and that was where I was going to ultimately end up, because Steve McQueen is absolutely uh, a badass. Redonkulous. In fact, as I'll tell you, or I'll bring it up, but Steve McQueen, the stunt driver they had, or the stuntman they had doing the motorcycle scenes, couldn't do them as well, so Steve McQueen fired him and did them himself. <laughs> okay. I still don't know how um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood pulled off that like trick where they put Leo in place of um, uh, Steve McQueen in the movie like as a, a whole trick, but I, I thought it was kind of cool for them to be able to do that. So yeah. uh, otherwise, um, so let's get into it. So uh, basic um, question we start every week with, what is your relationship to this movie? I know you have a very interesting and um, special relationship with this movie. I have it in uh, multiple ways. I first saw this movie this um, when I was in uh, early in high school. It became kind of a favorite among my friends because we loved comedies and such. But um, the story I have is, is the first weekend I went to La Crosse, Wisconsin to see your mother and start dating her. We went over to her parents' house um, from her apartment. And we, they, the, her and her mother went to this video store, which was VHS at that time, and rented a movie. I cannot tell you what movie it was, but it is on the list of Never Watch Again videos. It was a schlock film. They decided to rent it based on the back of the video box. And as a result, I was dead painting this movie the entire time going, this is terrible, this is terrible. And your mother being, your mother said, well, if you can do better, you pick the movie. So I gave her instructions to rent Young Frankenstein. So this would have been December 30th or 31st. I can't remember which of the two evenings it was. 1987, we watched it. Uh, her parents... Um, her sister and I and your mother um, and uh, your grandparents thought it was hilarious. Neither of them remember the situation or seeing the film. Well, clearly it wasn't special for them in the way that it was for you. But um, now, uh, to be fully disclosed, uh, this has been a family issue for years. My mother picks movies based on who's in it and the three-sentence description, which very rarely actually says anything about the film. So, for example, I've been watching um, several movies off of HBO Max right now, uh, trying to do my film-watching project. I'm trying to get through both of the AFI 100 lists and the Best Picture list. And... Um, the two movies that I've been switching between today, one where I was watching it with Sarah mm -hmm. and the other one um, regularly, are so far off from the basic premise. Sophie's Choice was listed as a uh, woman of or an immigrant woman of many moods meets a writer. 
<laughs> like that is in almost no way what the movie's about. Yes. And uh, what is it? Bringing up baby has to do with a uh, Eris's dog steals the bone to a Brontosaurus. Like that's only one small smidgen of what the movie's actually about. Okay. So uh, I'll just say that much. If you're picking anything off of the three-sentence description and you're not watching the Netflix trailer or whatever else is there, um, good luck. Well, it, it helps, too, if you don't remember what you saw five minutes after it's done. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, the basic plot summary of Young Frankenstein from 1974 a uh, respected medical lecturer, Dr. Frederick Frankenstein, played by Gene Wilder, learns that he has inherited his infamous grandfather's estate in Transylvania. Arriving at the castle, Dr. Frankenstein soon begins to recreate his grandfather's experiments with the help of servants Igor, Marty Feldman, Inga, Terry Gar, and the fearsome Frau Blucher, <laughs> Cloris Leachman. After he creates his own monster, Peter Boyle, new complications ensue with the arrival of the doctor's fiancée, Elizabeth, Madeline Kahn. So this movie was actually nominated uh, for two Academy Awards, Best Sound and Adapted Screenplay. Uh, it was number 13 on the AFI's list of 100 Funniest Movies. Uh, and this is, I think, the early 2000s list. And in 2003, it was deemed culturally and historically or aesthetically significant by the U.S. National Film Preserve and selected per for preservation by the Library of Congress National Film Registry. On its 40th anniversary, Mel Brooks considered it by far his finest, even if not his funniest film as a writer-director. So, what is this movie about? This movie is about enjoying the fact that you can poke fun at yourself if you're in Hollywood, because this is a, a, a purely this cemented the movie parody. Blazing Saddles started really the movie parody where they're poking fun at Westerns. This cemented it and made it a viable option to make fun of genre of movies and to enjoy the fact, you, you know, Hollywood takes itself so seriously at times. Even the schlockiest films take themselves seriously at times. This says you shouldn't take yourself too seriously. So, Mine's kind of along the same lines, but parodying the horror genre by taking on one of its most endearing symbols. Um, early Hollywood, especially the 30s and 40s, and we've kind of, I mean, there was this weird thing that Universal was going to try and do by bringing back all of these, like, specific horror um, pieces, and they've kind of sort of gone about it. They were going to bring back The Mummy, which they did with Tom Cruise, which kind of flopped. And so they kind of aborted all the rest of this. But they were going to bring back Dracula and The Swamp Thing and Frankenstein and all of these other ones that were done in like the 30s and 40s. Um, they did The Invisible Man, but they updated it significantly. That came out earlier this year with um, Elizabeth Moss. And actually, according to people, I never saw it because I really don't have much interest, but... 
um, that it was actually pretty good. So um, that being said, um, we'll move right into the rest of everything else. Well, I just was going to comment that actually I read a, a piece. Um, Roger Ebert actually said Peter Boyle was almost as good a Frankenstein as Longini. Well, that's high praise. So uh, who is your best performance then? Uh, Gene Wilder. I had the same, but why is he your best performer? Because he is the foundation of everything around it. He yes. has tendency to be both um, the, uh, the, the center of the film, and there's also certain elements of comedy associated with him. The peripheral stuff around him is what tends to be uh, the insanity. Sure. And he is able to play off the insanity to a large extent uh, and be funny, but without being buffoonish. Um, the one thing I'll, I'll say specifically here, a lot of the best comedic parts of this have to do with, um, other than like physical gags, which... You know, there are enough of, in certain places, the arm of the, the constable or the captain. Or I can't even remember what he is exactly, but uh, that's like constantly robotic or snapping in place, whatever that is. Yes. Or um, the the scene we'll get to eventually, but like the soup scene. Um, you know, like certain <laughs> comedic elements that are all physical. All of the like intellectual uh, humor seems to revolve around Wilder and he brings something I'm going to refer to that I don't think most people do, but it's an emotional humor, like his exasperation and like constant up and down where he's calm. And then, then he's up here, and, you know, or constantly absolutely puzzled. For example, sure. the scene where it's like Igor, he goes, Hey, wasn't your hump? Or, or, you know, I'm a skilled surgeon. I could do something with that hump. Wasn't that hump on the other side? You're mixing oh, two, two scenes, scenes together. Are, yeah. What hump? Yeah. So, okay, I missed. I'm sorry. I did miss. Well, that's all right. Scenes. I mean, this this but, yeah. movie's got quite a few of those, and we're going to go through them. I think the best lines category is going to take us probably a whole segment by itself. Yes. Uh, but um, ultimately, I the other part of this is, is that he was the primary... Uh, creative inspiration behind the whole thing and so from getting this off the ground having the um creative spark that even started this to begin with and then finally to completing it by being the leading star um i i just think for everything that this film is is you really can't probably pick anybody else to have had the best performance well the interesting thing was is he had done several films right in a row that were box office flops. Yes, that and, are cult classics now. Yeah, but. well, Willy Wonka, for example, was a flop. It yes. didn't draw at all. Well, now, so was the producers. Yeah, and uh, you know now, yeah, the producers. Actually, I would much prefer to watch Gene Wilder and Zero Moss Still and the producers than Nathan Lane and Matthew Broderick any day. Um, but, 
most people don't even know that there was a film before the Broadway play. But anyway, um, so Gene Wilder, just by happenstance, ended up doing Blazing Saddles because they had another person uh, cast in the role who was an actual former cowboy star. But um, the scene in the in Blazing Saddles where the Cisco kid is hanging upside down off the the uh, uh, bunk bed, they had the and I cannot remember the guy's name. He, they had him, and he started, like, oozing green stuff out of his mouth. And Mel Brooks thought the guy had was some sort of method actor and thought for sure this guy had staged this. Then he realized, no, he was not staging it. This was real, and the guy stopped breathing. And so um, they had to pull him down, had to haul him off to the hospital where apparently he had alcohol poisoning. Oh, and so Mel Brooks is sitting here going, um, what am I going to do? And somebody, and I don't know who, I think it was one of the guys who was, uh, if you remember right, I think it's his dentist ended up co-writing the film with him. Um, it was a guy that was his dentist who said he wanted to be a screenwriter and gave Mel Brooks a script years ago, and he ended up becoming a, a comedy writer for Mel Brooks. Anyway, he suggested Gene Wilder, so they called Gene Wilder, who they knew wasn't doing anything at the moment, and said, come in and read. You don't even need to read the part. Just do the part, and became cinematic history. While he was doing um, – Blazing Saddles, he kind of had this idea of doing another film parodying um, a genre. After he finished, he went to, I believe it was Florida, and was sitting on a beach. If it wasn't Florida, it was Hawaii. Sitting on a beach, and he came up with everything involved, went up to his room and spent about three hours and came up with the outline and the first couple of scenes for Young Frankenstein. So, yeah, and like not to give the impression that some of this stuff happens overnight. Um, you know, it took several months after that of him and um, Brooks painstakingly like crafting it out and doing all of the scene work and and the rest of it. But you know, at least the um, basic idea for it can be had in a short period of time. Well, for example, one of the famous scenes in the movie is the putting on the Ritz with Gene Wilder and Peter Boyle dancing uh, in the song, Putting on the Ritz. Mel Brooks absolutely hated the concept, said he didn't want to do it, thought it would be horrible. Gene Wilder said, no, I think it'll work. Convinced him to shoot it and then said, if you don't like it after we do it, we'll remove it. It obviously worked. I thought it did, but that's another <laughs> down the list. So, uh, all right. So, best minor performance. Ugh. Peter Boyle was good. Um, I thought he was great, but I, I have somebody else. Frankly, I think the whole cast kind of did well. I know. It's hard to pick a minor performance. I thought Marty Feldman was hilarious. 
Um, that's who I went with. Um, I, I I just think that like most of the best pieces are him or uh, Wilder just playing off of each other, and the way he looks so innocent but like completely crazy with his eyes, it just like has this endearing quality. Yeah, uh, I, I can say I'm gonna I'm gonna go with Peter Boyle just because. He really did play the part really well. I, I also thought Terry Gard did an excellent job, but I, I guess I would go with Peter Boyle. You know, the interesting thing is, is that Marty Feldman passed away, I believe, like four years later while filming another film. But, uh, when they interviewed Mel Brooks, they asked him about it. Feldman would smoke four packs of cigarettes a day <laughs> and would slam coffee. He would go through as many as 40 cups of coffee a day. Oh, God. Because he wanted the caffeine. How how do you don't have, like, huge acid reflux and COPD? Well, he died of a heart attack. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, at, I mean, at that's 48. That's such black humor. Yeah. All right. Um, most charismatic. Um, boy, um, well, I'll go with mine then, uh, Marty Feldman. Okay. And and it's for the exact same quality is that he has such a weird, um, sense to him, but so I just put this as a show notes piece together for some of our upcoming guests and the most charismatic award um, doesn't have to be the person with ultimately like the most um, general charisma, but it's the person who steals every scene seemingly, or like um, you notice them every time they're around, or yeah. you know. Er, it, so, for example, I think um, since we had it for our ET discussion last week with John Williams, I think he arguably could do the same thing for Jaws. Because every time the music comes on, dun-dun. yeah, um, high noon, yes. So, like, I give it a one. <laughs> okay. So that puts the average up at two and a half. <laughs> All right, impact significance. Now, I gave this a little bit higher. It did win Best Picture at the time. It was a spectacle movie. It's done by a um, fairly famous and like Hall of Fame director. I gave it a six. I went five, and I'm a big fan of the movie. Uh, I'm, <laughs> can you be a big fan of this movie? Well, I was when I was five. <laughs> <laughs> All right, novelty. I went six. There are very few, if any, circus movies. Um, there's certainly nothing like this. Um, All right, I'll go five. I was going to give it a four and a half, but I'll go five. Cause... But it's like it doesn't address any major. Well, other than there's like a euthanasia po- or like through line on the James Stewart character, which yeah. doesn't really make a whole lot of sense other than to set up that last piece. Yeah, I just uh, remember always going, why are they taking buttons away? 
Yeah, so we can make children cry by doing a euthanasia plotline in 1952. Woo! Great yeah. time at the circus. Woo! Everybody runs away to the circus. Yeah. Okay. So, um, all right. Classicness. Um, I mean, I have to immediately downgrade this because the circus no longer exists. Yeah. Like, it just doesn't hold up from that factor for the average person. Um, you know, you've probably never been to a circus. Uh, mo it doesn't, like, even come in people's thinking. It's not, like, something particularly classic. I've at least been to one and been to the circus museum, but that's because of where I'm from. Um, but I just gave it a five out of sheer necessity, but I, I find this to be middle of the road. All right. Um, I actually had a four. All right. And uh, I, I mean, <sighs> rewatchability two. like, you know, it's not that I couldn't rewatch this film. It's that I wouldn't rewatch this film because there's no reason to watch this film anymore. Unless you're somebody who is into the masochistic nature of um, watching every Best Picture winner like I am trying to. It's nostalgic, so I had a three. Okay. For me personally. Okay. And that's why I, like, waited to watch it with you, just for the that sheer factor. And, like... It does have, um, like, a couple of star actors in it, but good it, lord, it, it's it, just like... Watching the film again was kind of like when you were a kid, every, like, sixth grader, when you were a little child, like, kindergarten or first grade, every sixth grader seemed like such an old adult. Yeah. You know, this is what it is, is when you're, like, you know, what I remember is this film and what it was. Now that I watch it in retrospect, I'm going... Yeah. Okay. Why did I like this? The the only thing is is that I this may end up being one of the lower films on our list now in just total score. And I don't know if it deserves that because there's really nothing wrong with this. And no. it, it would be an okay kids movie, although they're certainly not gonna get the euthanasia <laughs> through line or understand uh, the whole train crash at the end. But like well, I can understand might. as they a might. kid why you might enjoy this. There's a lot of bright colors. There's a lot of action. It would be like yeah. actually going to the circus, which is why it's an infomercial for the circus. Yes. But um, ultimately, but then again, you don't know because I mean, this might be very much like the old joke. Two first graders are walking to school. The other turns to want the first and says, guess what I found on the veranda? A condom. This other one turns and says, what's a veranda? Okay, thanks, Dad. <laughs> You've now just bumped up one of our shortest episodes of all time into an explicit. <laughs> just to tail end this. So, in review... Legacy, two and a half. Impact significance, five and a half. Novelty, five and a half. Classicness, four and a half. Rewatchability, two and a half. And the audience score, by far our lowest so far, five and a half. For a total of 26. Woo! Uh, all right. <laughs> I don't have any remaining questions on this movie. <laughs> I don't I mean, either. you could... 
like I, I if, <laughs> if I have remaining questions, it's why would you put a euthanasia plotline in the middle of this story and use your best actor in order to do it and then put him in clown makeup through two and a half hours of a movie <laughs> only to reveal him to be a killer doctor. Woo! Yay! Let's give this best picture. Yeah. Oh, I, uh, I tell you. Uh, so, uh, that's, that, that's a, a good hearted, um, end to, uh, our particular, uh, episode. I wish we could talk longer, but I'm expecting a friend for dinner. So uh, have a great week, everybody. Um, stay tuned for our next live episode. It happens. So my one and only nominee. I oddly mm-hmm. thought that there weren't a lot of... This wasn't a great dialogue movie. I thought this worked much better as a actions not action, but actions movie in that uh, most of the revolving plot has to do with how characters are reacting to certain situations within the course of the movie as opposed to trying to be philosophical about anything. So the one that I kind of ended up coming back to because I'm like, I can't not nominate anything, uh, Ash, Ripley, for God's sake, this is the first time we've encountered a species like this. It has to go back. All sorts of tests have to be made. Ripley, Ash, are you kidding? This thing bled acid. Who knows what it's going to do when it's dead? Ash, I think it's safe to assume it isn't a zombie. You know, it's almost a funny line, which is kind of hilarious. And it's funny the robot's making a joke, too. All right. So, Rob, what did you have as your next um, line nominee? That was it. I really think that that is my favorite line from the entire movie. and I don't think anything else comes close. Dad, for those of you listening to the podcast who do not know what my uh, what I do for a living, as opposed to what I do here for fun, um, I'm a lawyer, and I've made a comment for years, which is there are two kinds of lawyers: those that tell you what the law is, and those who tell you how to get around it. And I'm always the latter. So this is the this is the exchange. Dallas. All right, Ripley. When I give an order, I expect it to be obeyed. Ripley. Even if against if it's against the law. Dallas. You're goddamn right. It's a good nominee. Did you have any others? It seems like Rob and I are out of them. I didn't have anything that really struck out or stuck out. Excuse me. For the most part, this is more of an action film than a dialogue film. Right. Yeah, that's and it's what I got. Yeah. There's not the one-liners or anything like that that you see in most kind of like horror or action movies either. Well, I, you know, it's not like um, go ahead, make my day. Yeah, I'm uh, the baby. Back. Yeah, exactly. Well, but even it's not like it's psycho either that it has to or it feels like it has to explain all of the motivation uh, behind. Um, uh, why am I drawing a blank? Norman Bates's character by the end of the movie and or like any of the other pieces that uh, come out of that, this is just pure terror because the the threat is um, against your life. And 
in a way that is just primal as opposed to anything else. So it can be more instinctual. So out of all of these, what would you say is the best line? I'm pretty sure, Rob, you're going to default to the uh, what you had. but And I, to a certain extent, I think I'm going to agree with you. I, I For a movie that isn't heavy on the dialogue and doesn't have a lot of great anecdotes or quips, that is one that I guess does stick out to me now that you mention it. I'm just going to chime in and agree with all or with both of you and make it unanimous. We'll include your last one, though. I think that's a good honorable mention. Yeah, I, I do. I like that because it really kind of exemplifies really <laughs> the issue of command sometimes, whether it be in space or whether you're um, in Vietnam or in World War II or in the American Revolution. All right. So let's get into the categories on our Stanley rubric. Uh, all right. So let's jump right into Legacy. I guess it's always good occasionally to have a refresher on what the categories are. So Legacy has more to do with more than five years after this movie came out until now. So roughly about 1984, 85, somewhere in there. Um, what is the legacy of this movie on a scale of roughly 1 to 10? How do people think about it and appreciate it? Is it still referenced in pop culture? Is it talked about as a must-see movie? Et cetera, et cetera. So out of that, Rob, what do you think is the legacy of this movie? How would you quantify that 1 through 10? I really think, and I always hate to go maximum on something because I think there are very few things in life that are kind of perfect in, in that way, but this has to be a 10. This is the OG sci-fi horror movie, and pretty much everything else in the same genre owes its existence in part to the granddaddy of all modern monster movies set in space. The the Xenomorph or the Eighth Passenger, it's a killing machine. It makes the people on the, on the thing really, on the, on the spaceship, reflect on their mortality. They aren't alone in the universe, and when you look at like that next to like Star Trek or Star Wars, it's fine that the Cardassians are, or Cardassians? I will say Cardassians. The Cardassians are ugly people. They're nothing like the Xenomorph, man. Those things are scary as all get out. But there's also something deeper about Chloe? it, too. Yeah! <laughs> That's a Kardashian, not a Cardassian. <laughs> ah. That was the distinction I was trying to make. Anyway. But there, there is something deeper to it, and I think a lot of people have really postulated this is in thanks to H.R. Geiger, Giger, whichever you prefer, the guy who designed Alien. And the fact that a lot of his designs, um, which I think is from the Necronomicon, Necronomicon, whatever his art book was that had like the like proto-Alien design on it, uh, there's a lot of tubes and piping and by, and like industrial but biological fit to it but there's also and this is the really weird thing there's also kind of a sexual aspect to it the alien's mouth is penetrative it's after sigourney weaver it's trying to lay its eggs in people and honestly the alien reproduction is something the face hugger the chest burster it's all incredibly iconic and honestly alien reaper the alien's reproduction cycle is really really uncomfortable i think for a lot of people and i think the legacy of alien is that it really kind of went the distance on making something that was pretty screwed up as far as like the monster doesn't 
kill you and feed you to its kids. The monster turns you into food for its kids in a really weird way. That's that scene that we're talking about uh, earlier, that deleted scene. And of course, you know, you get the, the, the face hugger. That's terrifying too. I think there's a ton of legacy that comes out of this movie. Dan, what do you have down for legacy? I had 9.5. I'm a big fan of uh, family guy because I really enjoy the humor. Seth MacFarlane, I think, is one of the funniest guys out there right now. And I've seen a scene where where the something comes up through one of the characters in that within the last three years. So this is by far a an iconic moment that is people know it, it's still in pop culture, and again, we're talking forty years. Um, I, I saved tens for probably about three or four films that I think really have the, that kind of impact that you could talk to ten people and nine of them would know what you're talking about. Um, I think this scene, though, comes as close, or the scene in this film, The Chestbuster, comes as close as that to any moment of iconicness that you can put in from any film in general. The only reason I gave it a half point down is is there are going to be a lot of people that know scenes and parts of the movie but can't remember the name of the film. So I'm going to make the average on this really easy. I gave it a 9. And the simple fact of it is this movie, while I think there are iconic bits of it, it may be known of, it may be referenced, uh, there are pieces of it. I think it does get lost in some of the greater shuffle. For science fiction films, I don't think it's necessarily one of the first ones that anybody immediately associates with space or anything else off the tip of their tongue unless you know they're of a certain uh, generation that saw this when this kind of originally came out or it was a part of that. I think people more um, easily gravitate towards uh, stuff that seems to be a little bit more rewatchable, like Star Wars is is an easy one, but I think there are other uh, film sense that are uh, easier for or more palatable, maybe that's the word. And I do also think that this has kind of lost a little bit of legacy the farther removed we are. Yes, there are scenes and bits and parts, but I don't think... The movie as a whole is necessarily there. And I also don't think the willingness of uh, people to recognize this as like one of the great iconic films is necessarily there either. Because I definitely don't see it necessarily on any huge list of suggestions in the same way that I see a bunch of other films. Again, I think that has a little bit more to do with um, how dark and grisly and raw at times this movie is. Uh, I don't think that there's particularly anything that's um, too terrible if you're probably about um, 17 or older that you can probably easily sit through this film without having too much of a problem given the amount of crap that's on TV today. But there are just some nitpicks I had where in the greater scheme of things that we're possibly going to end up having this in a list of 500 different films. I got to find something where it has those. And to me, this was just not one of those that goes full 10. 
So that ends up with an average of 9.5, and I think that's probably pretty close. Okay. So impact significance, we'll review the category on this one as well. Um, this is uh, within the short term or the initial five years or so, uh, as it had an impact or, or a significance in the industry, um, in a particular genre, um, whether it influenced other movie makers, um, whether it had certain uh, measurable qualities in, in that particular regard. And this can mean a whole lot of different things. We've never completely nailed down what it is. I think the biggest thing about it is this is more of the short term in the immediate of when this came out. So for me, I gave it an 8.5. I think this was a significant movie when it came out. It had a huge box office. There's a bit of disagreement as to um, what it was and how much it actually made. And I do think that clouds a little bit. But I don't see it in the same way where I always look at this and I, I brought this to bear in several of the other episodes that we've done. Certain people, when they were a kid, talk about Star Wars and the first time they saw it in such a like almost um, deity like way uh, that they, they just lionize their first viewing of Star Wars. I have never heard anyone describe this film that way until basically I met Rob. So <laughs> I, I don't think it necessarily sat with it, but it's hard to also ignore that it had a significant impact on science fiction. It had a significant um, short-term effect on the horror genre because uh, there are a lot of pieces that I read in my research that had this comparable to slasher movies. And that the the birth or the explosion of um, maybe I, I don't know in the uh, greater scheme when Halloween was because I've never seen it. I know after. Nightmare at Elm Street was uh, after this, but uh, I right think that. 13th. And uh, okay, but uh, the I, I also think if I if I can remember right that. Uh, the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre was before this. Yes. Uh, but you take that into effect and then you put it in a genre movie where it could work. And I love when we take a genre, we're subversive, and we change kind of um, the amount of storytelling and what we can possibly do in a particular universe or world or um, how it's designed, and it can be a little bit subversive. So for all of that, I gave it a high mark. I can't give it highest marks. I gave it an 8.5. Dad, what did you have down? Well, you have to understand that I have to look at these as objectively as I can. Um, you mentioned Star Wars. I saw Star Wars when it was released in theaters. I saw it, The Empire Strikes Back when it was released in theaters. And I saw... Return of the Jedi, when it was released in theaters. And I enjoyed them, but it wasn't like they changed my life. So I, and I make this comment, I am a historian, I am not a futurist. Science fiction does not ring real true to me. I would much rather go and watch a movie like Lincoln than Star Wars, because it's just me. So I try to look at this as realistically as I can and think about in this category, I came up with 8.5, um, looking at this realistically. And 
knowing the impact it had on other people. Because some of my closest friends are much more into sci-fi and futuristic things. And I, I try to think about how they reacted when this film was released and how things have been. And so that's where I came up with it. It was based upon not my personal feelings as much as people who enjoy this genre, how they reacted to it. All right, so Rob, I think everybody's waiting on pins and needles. What do you have as the impact and significance of this? You know, I, I think it was the first time, because we'd, we'd had violent movies before this. We really had. But I think it was the first time in this genre that you really got something that was truly scary, truly horrifying. And I think that really pushed us in, in, a, in an interesting direction for kind of shaping the eighties as a movie landscape. So I think the impact short term, because it was a 1979 movie really kind of played into the eighties. You know, of course it spawns a sequel aliens and that's, that's got the same gritty feel. But if you look at, at other things, you know, the empire strikes back. I'm, I have no doubt that George Lucas took some inspiration from this because a empire is the greatest star Wars movie ever made. I don't care what anybody says about the rest of the other eight or 10 or 12 or how many they got right now, but there's the darkness in, in that. And of course the evolution of, you know, movie magic techniques, which I truly feel uh, this, and this is a little bit further than five years, but this, the stuff that was learned in alien about practical special effects and things like that really came in handy in predator, which I think was 1986 and also Jurassic park in 1993. It's again, it's probably a little bit longer term than we're talking, but the ability to create really truly real looking and scary as all get out monsters, I think was, was aliens legacy to the movie world. So I, I gave it a nine and as, as much as things have shifted to CGI and not practical effects, I really think the fact that they had, uh, they had a seven foot tall guy in a plastic suit slathed in Vaseline and water and, and dripping and all these, all these things. I think that's some of the greatest cinematography ever and definitely impacted some of the crazy stuff in the, in the 1980s with the movie world. I will point out one thing that did dawn on me while I was watching this film again, mm -hmm. which is, and whether you call it an homage or a tribute or whatever, but you think back to Hitchcock, and Hitchcock never felt it necessary to show the actual violence, to imply the violence. You never yes. saw anybody in this film actually die or get hurt, other than the android, which really didn't matter. Everybody um, else was dominated the chessboard. Well, okay. By, so by that's the big the guy, one, though, means, That's by, the like, one scene. But uh, that was just because that, that vehicle had to be. But you didn't see you didn't see Dallas die. You didn't see Lambert die. You didn't see Brett die. You didn't see Ash or excuse me, Parker die. It was all implied. And because your your I don't know, your creativity, your um your, your ability mind fills in the blank. Yes. And you always think of it as being a more horrible thing than they could ever have done by just filming it. And right. so that that in and of itself. I mean, you know, from whether you talk about Psycho and Hitchcock, the fact that, you know, everybody swears they saw the 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 knife actually stab her. It's not there. 
it's implied. You see the knife moving. You see the blood in the drain. You see, okay, it's implied. I just rewatched it like six weeks ago, and you definitely see her and the knife and the plunge. Like, it's all there. No. I, I, okay, I'm sorry. I just literally watched it. And you definitely see it in the second stabbing of... Anyway. Martin Balsam? Yes. All right, so novelty... Uh, yes, we have graded this one out. Uh, the average ended up at an 8.67. So novelty... And I think this is, I very rarely give 10s. I started this one out when I did my pre-notes. I was at a 7.5. As we have talked about it, I am going with a full 10 because there are so many different small nuances and uh, bit parts to this that I think are uh, out of the ordinary. So one, it's genre subversive. We've already talked about that. But I think that's an incredible element to its novelty. Uh, for the fact that there aren't many horror films. So it's two genres, and it's subversive to both. The fact that you have a, your primary hero in the movie and sole survivor being a woman. And I will even throw in the topper that the primary issue of this uh, movie and the action that ends up changing the tone is a monster impregnating a man. <laughs> yeah. I, I think that that's, yeah. that's a, a unique thing. It really is. So for all of those little pieces and where we're at culturally, I'm going to give it a straight 10. Yeah, I never thought about that. I, I, I'm just wondering how many females out there just really enjoyed the fact that this thing burst through um, a man's body for a change. <laughs> Don't know. All right, so Dad, what do you have for novelty? I had 9.5, and the only reason I deducted 5 or 0.5 was is because the reason this movie was made was because of the success of Star Wars. Otherwise, it would have been a 10. That's fair. Is that really discounted from novelty, though? It, uh, the Like I said, the only reason that this movie was made was because of the success of Star Wars. So it's not necessarily novel. They played off the futuristic alien, you know, sci-fi type of thing in order to make it. And that's the only reason. I mean, we're talking about uh, a point okay, five. Right. You're gonna argue with me about a point five? Really? No, I'm <laughs> I'm more arguing of the classification of the category and where you're knocking off points. Not that you knocked off points. And I, I can see where your argument is. So I, it's it was a question. It's not necessarily like an argument either. I was well, just I'm simply just to you being you. Fair enough, Rob. What do you? I'm down for novelty. I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, like, I respect what Dana just said that that yes, this movie was made because of Star Wars, but I'm gonna completely discount that because I think it stands stands incredibly on its own. That's not to say your opinion doesn't count, sir. Uh, but at the same time, for my opinion, solid ten. This was originally planned as a B movie with like a beach ball for a monster or something like that. It was really not supposed to be a scary movie. It's supposed to resemble like the Blob or something like that. And to have Ridley Scott come in. And change it into this thing, you know, bringing in H.R. Geiger, Geiger, however you pronounce his name, 
and bringing this monstrous and horrifying revolutionary type monster. This was something that was just incredible. And it echoes all the way down through cinema today. If you look at any of the movies that came after, you know, I was talking about, of course, aliens, but things like event horizon, uh, total recall, Jurassic Park, these all bear this homage to Alien, and it's not just the movies that do it, either in the past or nowadays. If you look at, like, video game franchises that are set around this, you know, you look at, like, Dead Space or Halo or the Warhammer 40,000 franchise and some Star Wars to an extent, and even more recent movies like Interstellar and Life, Life gave me massive Alien vibes when I saw it on... A trailer. I'm like, oh, oh, this, this is alien all over again, man. And I really think that that's the the defining piece of Aliens' uh, novelty and legacy that we've talked about before. So that all graded out to a 9.83. Classicness is always the most difficult to quantify, but I think dead. And again, I'm not to keep repeating it for the last couple of weeks but i think you did add a interesting qualifier for this one that definitely helps to classify the category uh how much you identify with the primary character and all of the things that went about it so for female empowerment i would say that this is much ahead of its time for a sense of science fiction i think this is much ahead of its time uh, for how much we can emotionally create or relate and still be horrified at, in certain spots of the movie and they're effective versus coming away from it and still having the same dread. There's really nothing about this movie that is ineffective from an emotional standpoint, whether that's through Ripley or any of the other characters. I think it all still works. I'm really having a hard time understanding why I necessarily gave it a nine other than I think I didn't necessarily want to give it a 10. I guess, tell me how I'm wrong, Rob. Uh, You know, I don't think you are wrong because I was actually a little bit dubious on giving this a 10 as well. I think the movie has aged exceptionally well. Again, it's in that same vein as Jurassic Park and the practical effects are just as ridiculously terrifying as they were 40 years ago. Uh, there's a lot of, again, we've talked about sort of some of the uncomfortableness, uh, you know, with Kane's son and all these things. And I think that that is something that very few movies surpass. Again, the alien life cycle and things like that is really a truly unique thing. I think in almost all of cinema, uh, if you were to describe that to somebody that, you know, okay, it, it you know, it's an egg and then it clamps onto a host and then the, the thing bursts out of it. I think it's a classic from that perspective that it's so truly unique, again, with the the art design and the concept of how this creature actually works. And I think that makes it uncomfortable, too, because that's explosive birth like that is really I mean, gross no matter what it, what or who it's happening to. Uh, and obviously, sometimes it happens in the animal kingdom with some parasites and things like that. But, like, it's really shocking. And I think that that's part of what the classicness of it is, is that it's... Even today when I rewatch this, which is not as often as you might think, depending on how much I like this movie, that chestburster scene is still like, just like, man, that is so screwed up. All right, Dad, how do you feel about it? I had it at a nine. 
And again, I, I started thinking back on this and some of the techniques and things, and I was thinking about it and uh, like the scene Brett's searching for the cat. I mean, at one point in time, I'm going, just find the dead or the damn cat or die. Because it just seemed to, the, the tension just continued. You knew something was going to happen. You just didn't know exactly when. And it just kept building. And the, the movie has these points throughout that just give it that level of classicness that permeates. Whether it's sci-fi or western or whatever genre you have, it transcends. It's that... Uh, again, it's the issue of surprise versus suspense, and this has so many elements of suspense throughout the film. That's why I gave it a nine. Rob, I don't remember what number you put on it. Uh shoot! Did I give it? I give it a. I give it a nine and a half. Nine and a half. Okay. So that ends up being a nine point one seven overall for classicness. And now we move to our most subjective category of all of them, rewatchability. Now, I think this has taken on a new meaning in the last couple of weeks. Um, when we had Aruna on to do the notebook two weeks ago, uh, she pointed out something where um, the uh, does the movie have the same quality if you can rewatch it literally at any time and, and um, come back to it, and it doesn't matter how much time has passed, it still works. Um, you could watch it back to back to back versus, you know, do you sometimes need distance from a film in order for it to have the same impact when you watch it? So I think that is a category we might stick with or incorporate. But then there's just the basic subjective of uh, how often do you like to rewatch this movie or how often do you think you could comfortably do so and that it would still be enjoyable? So. This is kind of a weird one for me. This has always been Dana's uh, kind of specialty category. He likes to refer to it as the mac and cheese category. Um, you know, <laughs> what are the comfort foods in in the same way we do the comfort movies? Uh, so I start with a baseline of five on just about every movie, and it moves either up or down a scale based on my enjoyment of the movie with its technical aspect. To me, I... This was a fine film, but it wasn't something that I necessarily, because how heavy, how dark uh, it was, and I'm not a horror fan, that 